0: This is Keach Rainwater, and welcome to Designated Drummer, my podcast. Here Um, today, I am going solo. Here, I don't have a guest today, but I'm going to talk to you um, about some of my favorite drummers that I've um, you know idolized over the years. And I've uh, you know, some of them I've got to meet, and well, actually, one of them that I'm going to talk about, I actually got to meet. Um, uh, So, actually, two two of of my favorite drummers that I'm going to talk about, I've got to actually meet. so, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is I like about these drummers, and what's different about them, and what some of the things are going to be the same. Uh, that they're amazing, and that they're you know very talented, and all all that stuff, and the skill level, and all that. But um, maybe a few surprises in there that you that you didn't know about some drummers. Um, but uh, I'm going to start talking about uh, Paul Lyme. So in episode five of my podcast, I got to talk to Paul Lyme for quite a while, and it was a really, really good conversation about how he started out in the early days, and uh, he instantly had uh, a great rhythm and and an understanding of the drum kit from an early age. And people like producers and things like that around the Dallas-Fort Worth area where he grew up, uh, they... Uh, could pick up on that and they knew they knew he would be a good studio drummer because of the way he played live and the way he could hold a really steady beat and uh, he just you know was obvious he was just a really good solid drummer and that began his meteoric climb to one of the top session players in Nashville and in la of course you know when he was lived in la for a while but if you go back and listen to my uh, episode five um, we have a long long conversation. About everything from playing in the studio to um, like licensing music and things like that—really interesting to me. Um, his career, and if you go and you look on his uh, discography page, Paul Lyme, and it's by the way, it's Paul P A U L L E I M, Paul, uh, L-E-I-M, Paul Lyme. um, He has played on so many records that it's it's boggling to the mind how many the sheer volume of records that he's played on. And if you uh, look at his discography and you just scroll down and scroll down and scroll down and scroll down and you keep on going and it's just like, and it's not big writing either. It's tiny little writings of each album he's played on. And now mind you, this is every single entry in this thing, which is like just like pages and pages and pages, every single entry in there of a tiny little line is a full album is most of them are I mean he played on some TV themes and things like that but I mean his discography like albums that he's played on every single entry is an entire album that's 10 or more songs uh that's I mean imagine that all that whole list of stuff he's played on times 10 basically let's just figure let's just do a simple arithmetic that is that's just thousands and thousands and thousands of songs that he was just responsible for playing drums on I mean it's amazing what he's done in I will talk a little bit about one of the things I really like about Paul. Paul Lyme, and I think it's probably one of the reasons why Mutt Lang chose Paul Lyme to play on the Shania uh, records in the beginning, was because Paul, he is, I think he serves the song. He's been well known for playing in the studio and not self-serving at all. He serves the song. He figures out what needs to be played on this song to make it a hit record. And that's his thought process. And I really learned a lot when I met Paul and I got to sit and watch him play here in Nashville on some sessions and things. And he's uh, just amazing, his uh, intellect and his uh, ability, his um, ability to know what to play on a song. And also more importantly, know, knowing what not to play on a song knowing when to lay back when to uh not play at all when to you know when to when to do the right thing to serve the song to shine to let somebody else shine on it like a guitar player or a vocalist or something like that and also keeping a great beat and all that stuff and just the skill level that he plays and all that going on at one time with a click going on in your ear a click track and in, in a lot of cases um uh, he's, he's just a master at what he does, and the really thing, I would say the, the biggest thing I like about Paul Lyme is his ability to be what I call a chameleon, and that is uh, when he's playing, you can't really listen to him and say, oh, oh, that's Paul Lyme playing. He, he's such a chameleon, he plays for whatever the song needs. And that makes a great studio drummer, whether it's a a TV commercial or if he's playing on uh, a a theme song for a TV show or, you know, from back in the 70s or whatever. And uh, a a record, a Shania record, a uh, Kenny Chesney record, uh, just whatever. um, He just plays what the song needs. Whereas, you you know, on other drummers like, um, and they're great drummers, great drummers in Nashville, Lonnie Wilson and Chris McHugh, they... Are great studio drummers and playing, but I can listen to them and tell you, oh, that's Lonnie Wilson. I can tell his style. That's the way he plays. Um, the same thing with Chris McHugh. Um, he's played on a lot of a lot of records. In the, um, I started hearing him a lot around the early 2000s, and all the way through the 2000s, and even still. But that's when I started hearing him crop up in like um, Little Big Town and Keith Urban and a lot of those big. Uh, hits in the early to mid-2000s. You heard Chris McHugh on a lot of stuff, and you could tell, uh, and Rascal Flats too. He played on a lot of Rascal Flatts stuff. You can tell his style, the way he does fills, this groove, the way he does grace notes, all that stuff. Um, and uh, Lonnie Wilson is a great, great drummer and played on so many things through the 90s. I mean, you, you can't listen to a... Uh, like a 90s, a bunch of 90s music. Like in my car, I have XM Satellite Radio. I have Prime Country, which was a lot of the 90s, a lot of 90s country. And I swear it'd be like song after song after song after song. It'd be Lonnie Wilson. It's Lonnie Wilson played on that. It's Brooks and Dunn. Lonnie Wilson played on that. That's uh, whatever. Um, you know, he just played on so many things, you know. Um, it was Lonnie Wilson. Lonnie Wilson all the time. You hear in the 90s. um. It seemed like I think I was listening one day and it was like four or five songs in a row. It was all Lonnie Wilson that <laughs> played on everything. Um, he was a huge, huge session call back in the 90s. Um, uh, but Paul Lyme, when you hear him playing on a record, it just fits the song. You know, it's just so perfect what he plays. He, it fits the song and it fits the artist and it fits the, the mood of the album, the record. I mean, he takes all that into account. And he plays, and he makes his playing decisions based on that, um, the style of the song. What what are the words saying? You know, he listens to the lyrics and and, and makes it fit somehow. You know, I don't know. It's just strange. But um, I wish I had a, a tenth of his ability to do that when I play in the studio. I tend to, to keep my mind on the click and keep a steady beat, and I just keep good time. And I wish my mind could expand out further and, and, and be sort of a Paul Lyme where I can just dig in there and just serve the song and play so perfectly. Um, Give the engineers what they want, the producer what they want, and the artist what they want. Even the other musicians on the record uh, love playing with Paul because he just plays the perfect thing, you know. Um, Anyway, you can check him out on episode five of my um, Designated Drummer podcast. Um, Anyway, so I'm going to move on. Um, Vinny Cagliuta, another great, inspiring drummer that I grew up listening to. Um, in the early eighties, I was on a date and I was, uh, we were listening to some music that she had in her car and, um, I kept hearing this amazing music and I didn't know what it was. She made like a mixtape of some things, which you would do back, back then you made a mixtape on cassette of a lot of your favorite stuff. Um, and she was putting a lot of kind of jazz fusion type things on there. And I kept hearing this album and this drummer and I Really wasn't sure who it was. It turned out to be Vinnie, uh, sorry, it turned out to be Vinny Caliuta playing on a Gino Vanelli, two records by Gino Vanelli. Um, I'm sorry, no, just one record. It was the Nightwalker album. And I kept hearing this drummer playing and I was just like, who is that? And so I think I went, you didn't have internet back then. This is the early 80s. Um, I had to go to the record store, look up Gino Vanelli, and I bought some albums and I was looking to see who played Drums on what? And um, Mark Craney was the one who played on the Brother to Brother album in like 78, 79, 78, I think. And then um, in 81, which I think when they recorded the album, it would have been like 1980 or something like that, was Vinnie Caluda, who was not really mainly heard of back then. I mean, he, he... the real serious jazz people and the really serious drummers would know who he was but he wasn't really that mainstream at that point I think he might have played with um, Frank Zappa at the time or something like that but played on this Gino Vanelli album and I just was blown away by his skill and his um, just the way he played and you got the idea that this wasn't with the click track the, because it was just so wildly maniacal uh, the music that Gino Vanelli would write and the Joe Vanelli Gino's Gino's brother, who would play keyboards, and I guess he kind of helped arrange a lot of the stuff too, and played keyboards on it. was just a fantastic, and the stuff that they played together, Vinnie Colaiuta, you you feel like when he's playing on that Nightwalker album, you feel like when Gino, when I mean when uh, when Vinnie Colaiuta is playing, you feel like he has played this song hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and like he's on tour with them and they're just like, this is just like, uh, I've got this, you know. But when you think about it in the studio, they've just worked it up and played it a couple of times, maybe. And I've heard a, a rumor that Gino Vanelli, I'm sorry, no, I keep saying Gino Vanelli, then Vinny, Vinny Calyuta, the drummer, he doesn't like to do a lot of takes, you know. He feels like once he, when he gets it, he gets it and everybody else can overdub. And, uh, and when you listen to his stuff, you get it, man. He's just, he's so on it. And he's such a drummer's drummer, you know. And uh, I actually got to meet Vinnie Caliuta. Um We were doing a thing in Nashville for, and I don't remember what the organization was. It was for the soldiers. It was for soldiers that had died in uh, in their service, you know, in serving our country that had died. And um, they were trying to raise money for adding some extra benefits and things for their families and things like that. Um, and uh, Vinnie Caluda played on one of the sessions, and I was there because it it was a song that um, Richie had written, Richie with with Lone Star had written, and uh, they were doing the session, and we were there, we were just there watching, and Vinnie Cayuta walks in, and I just was like, man, he's on this session, that's so awesome, and I got to meet him, and uh, we hung out a little bit, and um, such a great guy, and such a great drummer, but I was so surprised that when he sat down at the drum kit, uh, I was expecting him just like before, they roll before they roll the, the the recording before they hit the the recording button. That he would just be like going crazy and warming up and doing all these crazy crazy things. But he just kind of sat back there and tapped on the drums a little bit and just kind of unassumingly played a little beat here and there and just like just like nothing. Like didn't I was expecting him to just go crazy on it. And uh, he's so skillful and so amazing that uh, he never did. He never did. Now during the take. At towards the end of the take, he kind of played a little bit more uh, outside the box and kind of got to stretch out a little bit, which was really cool. But um, I remember at one point, um, uh, Jimmy Nichols, the, pro- the pro- he was uh, producing at that time and arranging. Um, Vinny was asking, you know, while they were working up the song or whatever. Dan Huff was also playing guitar in that, who's a, one of our who was one of our producers way back. Um, he was playing guitar and. Uh, so they're just kind of talking about the song a little bit. And Vinny said something like uh, to Jimmy Nichols, like, "Okay, well, what do you want to play on this? What, how do you want this to go?" You know, and he was just trying to get some guidance on what to play. And this, the song, the song was actually kind of sounded a lot like Africa by Toto. It kind of had that boom, kind of real kind of slow groove thing. Um, sort of a slow samba thing, and um, I think they were trying to kind of emulate that that sound of sort of like Africa. But um, Vinny was asking what to play, and then I remember Jimmy Nichols just saying, well, "I don't know, Vinny. I'm, I, you're Vinny. I just that why that's why I got you. That's why I got you in here because you're Vinny. You just do whatever you do. You know." <laughs> I thought that was so cool. Perfect answer for uh, probably all Vinny needed to hear. You know, it's just like, okay, I'll, I'll just play whatever comes to mind, and he did amazingly, of course. You know really, really neat. Um, and, uh, it was really neat to have gotten to meet one of my heroes and talk to him for a few minutes. And he has actually played live a lot with, um, uh, Faith Hill. And I've seen him in award shows and things like that. And I don't know if he was on tour with them or what, but I know he had, he had, um, there was a connection with Jimmy Nichols and Vinnie Calhuda. I know Vinnie, Vinnie plays, uh, sometimes with Faith Hill. And I don't know in what capacity, if it's like live or if he's played in the studio with her or what. But um, I have seen the connection between Vinnie Cayuta and Faith Hill and probably all because of Jimmy Nichols, because Jimmy Nichols, I guess, knows Vinnie and um, he, he calls Vinnie and gets him to come play on stuff. But I remember seeing him one time at an award show. We were playing in award show. It was like CMA Awards or something like that. And I saw Faith Hill up there playing and I was Vinnie sitting up there. Um, but anyway big hero of mine, and, and one of the reasons I continued on being a professional drummer in the early 80s, because I would listen to people like Vinnie Colaiuta, thinking like, man, someday, someday, it would be so nice to play that good, because I I still can't play as good as Vinnie, but um, I have kind of learned some of his licks and things, and because of his great playing on uh, some of the, a lot of the stuff he's done, especially with Gino Vanelli, I've learned some licks that I can add to some of my playing, and I thought that was really Super fun to meet him, and um, now I can say I know him. Um, my next drummer I'm going to talk about that it really inspired me in the beginning is Steve Gadd. Um, everybody, I think, who's anybody knows who Steve Gadd is. He's played on a bazillion records from jazz to pop to um, you name it. You know, he's played on everything. I don't know if he's actually played on any country records, but um, he is a drummer's drummer. Uh, he he's he's just an amazing guy. Very. And I'll tell you the reasons why I like him. Um, he's very innovative. I heard in an interview one time Steve Gadd was talking about, you know, they asked him, sort of, how do you come up with things like, um, you know, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover or some of the drum beats and things that you played. Uh, and he said, I really enjoy uh, getting a, uh, a challenge from a producer or a songwriter or something like that. And they would come up and say, um, you know what can you do on this or can it sound a little bit like this or and i think the 50 ways to leave your lover was came from when paul simon they were in the studio and steve gad had been working up some kind of a little uh kind of a thing like that uh, a little beat and uh they asked him they said what is that thing you're playing and he said that's just something i'm kind of trying to work on can you add that into the song and so he he just um, took what he was learning and added it to sort Of the intro and the outro, and the in between, well, the verses, the parts of the verses on 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, and he added that. Um, but uh, you know, also his, his uh, flawlessness, like how he can, he's just so he just he does not, uh, he can be a hard hitter, but he's not typically a hard smasher, hard hitter. He can play so subtle, and every single note that he plays is just like to perfection, and it's just a good it's a true testament to what I'd said earlier in my podcast that, you know, amateurs work to get it right. Professionals work to never get it wrong. And it seems like um, Steve Gadd is just one of those guys that just never gets it wrong. Not to say that he never makes a mistake or anything like that. You know, it's nobody's perfect, but he definitely with his experience and his career has definitely worked to never get it wrong. And so everything he plays, he has a way of even if he messes up or something, like he has a way of, uh, of rolling it into what he was going to do and make it sound like he meant to do that. I think that's what I mean by professionals just work to never get it wrong. Um, and his energy, Steve Gadd's energy, I've seen him play really, really subtle before, and then he gets to a part where he's doing a little solo, he'll start out really just where he's just barely, and, and he just commands attention when he plays. He plays so soft, that you just have to, you bend an ear and you listen. You're so in tune with what he's playing because he plays so soft. He's like drawing you in, drawing you in, playing these little soft things. And then it'll kind of build a little bit and he'll play. And next thing you know, he has these bursts of energy that he'll start playing. And he actually, when he plays, he'll play so hard that that he'll come up out of his chair a little bit sometimes and playing uh, just what his body needs to play to do what he's trying to do in his solo. It's just amazing to watch him. But Steve Gadd, yeah, he's such an amazing drummer and a huge hero of mine. And, uh, you know, the first time I heard about him in the early 80s, I started looking at records and I started noticing Steve Gadd, Steve Gadd, Steve Gadd, you know, it was like he was on everything. It seemed like he was on everything. Um, And also another drummer that really inspired me along the same line. And I know that um, Steve Gadd and this guy, Jeff Percaro, everybody. Most people, most drummers know who he is. Um, would share a lot of uh, things, and also play uh, back and forth on albums. Like they would, there was a um, really good Al Jarreau record back in the early '80s. I think it came out '79 or '80. Um, uh, it was called Breaking Away, I believe it was the album, and they shared uh, drum duties on that album. Some of the songs were Jeff Porcaro, some of the songs were Steve Gadd, and all of them were amazing. I mean, like Steve Steve Gadd just played his Steve Gadness. It was just like his own thing on there. But when you heard Jeff Porcaro on there, I was, I was like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. It's not the same exactly as Steve Gadd, but it's Jeff Porcaro playing." And again, to fit the song, to perfectly fit the song and the mood and the feel of the music, um I would say that uh that you know, I would say that uh Jeff Porcaro is definitely a um one of those play whatever fits the song because I know that he'll come up with drum beats like the way he came up with the beat for Rosanna the song Rosanna he was talking about it um, in an interview one time and he said I wanted to combine uh, the Bo Diddley beat which is don't 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 that with um, Fool in the Rain or something like that from a a, I want to say it was a Led Zeppelin record where um, John Bonham had done grace notes on the snare. And also the Purdy shuffle, Bernard Purdy, um, played, used to play this shuffle that he would do all the time with this, like, and he would add these grace notes in there. And, um, and I think Jeff Carl was trying to combine, uh, a lot of those aspects into just one drum beat. So he came up with that Rosanna, the beat for Rosanna. They said, hey, we're going to do this shuffle. And uh, what's a good shuffle beat? Like a halftime shuffle. So he came up with, with that whole thing. And then I'm sure the band just freaked out and loved it when he did it. Um, and that's just been just one of the most famous drum beats you can possibly imagine. Jeff Picaro. And, uh, of course, that was just one thing that he played on. He played on so many records uh, in the 70s and 80s. And I believe he even played on... I found out he played on a Seals and Crofts record that was one of my favorite artists growing up Seals and Crofts. And, and I heard that, I think it was like, um, Diamond Girl or something like that. I think Jeff Piccaro played on that. And he must have been so young. Cause that was in the early seventies. He must've been like 18, 19, maybe at the time. But, um, anyway, uh, Jeff Piccaro, great drummer. So I'm going to talk about another one. Um, And this is very interesting. Buddy Rich. Um, Everybody knows who Buddy Rich is. He's a great band leader, drummer, soloist, whatever you want want to call it. Um, Great drummer. Um, Was born in like 1917 or something like that. I mean, he's just been around. You know, he was in the Army for a long time. And I I read up on him and learned a few things that I did not know about Buddy Rich. Um, One thing is, I'll share those with you. One thing is that he started playing when he was two years old. Can you imagine? Hold on, I gotta take a sip of coffee right now. Oh, golly, two years old playing drums at two years old. And then he had just, um, I guess he was one of those child prodigy, um, gifted musicians, and that's probably all he ever did. And this was back in a time when. There was fewer distractions, I think. You know, back in those days when tap dancers, dancers, singers, they they sort of did it all. They were sort of actors, and they sang and they danced and everything. But you, when you did something like that, you—that's uh, pretty much all you did all day long. Like it would be something like you wake up in the morning and you may uh, read through something or you know read through a script or something that uh, you know while you're having your breakfast, and then you rehearse. You start rehearsal you go to rehearsal and you rehearse during the day and then uh, maybe you do a run through or something in the evening of whatever it is you do, if it's a film or if it's a stage show or whatever. And then at night you would perform at a club or um, on a movie or something like that. And it was just worked all the time. Um, that's kind of what those people did back then. You know, those the movie stars and the musicians and stuff like that, they just, their craft was basically their life. You know, they, they spent all day practicing and then, most of the evening or night performing. And then when you do that kind of thing, your muscle memory and your experience and your talent just grows and you become just amazingly unstoppable. You know, And, that, and I, think Buddy, I think of Buddy Rich is that kind of drummer that just played all the time. Um, and now here is a very interesting thing that I read about Buddy Rich that just shocked me, that he never learned how to read music that I just went, what? Wait a minute. Buddy Rich, big band drummer. And, you know, you see all those musicians that he plays with. They've got their, their music stands up there. They're obviously reading music. Buddy Rich never learned how to read music. He did it all by ear. He would just hear the part. He would, you know, uh, talk through it, whatever, you know, and he just knew what to play. Um, but the fact that he never learned how to read music is just, was a shocker to me. Um, I didn't really learn drum charts like the Nashville chart system until when I got to Nashville in 1994 when I was in my 30s and so I was kind of a late bloomer as far as the um, drum Nashville charts were was learning to read those but um, I did know how to read music when I was um, in grade school you know I was playing trumpet and I learned how to read music and the basics of of rudiments and things like that and I uh, you know during that time and when I quit trumpet and started focusing more on drums, I would get drum books and I would learn how to apply what I learned from the trumpet, um, you know, syncopation wise. And I would learn how to read drum charts, drum, drum music, like actually written out music. And, uh, there was a few books I got when I started out that I had a teacher and he was teaching me how to read drum music. And so that started, but I never really followed that along very much. I didn't stay with that very long. I was just more like, um, you know, more like uh, Buddy Rich. I would just listen, I would just play by ear, mostly. But I could read drum music if I had to. Um, But um, Buddy Rich, golly, he was just, it's amazing to watch him play, and you get the idea immediately watching him play his swagger and his, just the way he sits at the kit, the way he fits on that kit with his sticks and the way he plays, uh, you know immediately, that Buddy Rich was born to play drums. You knew that's that's what he was going to be, you know. You could just tell. He was he was just born with that drum kit around him, you could tell. Um, definitely um, a drummer's drummer again, Buddy Rich. So amazing um, to watch him play and all the uh, dynamics that he plays with and all the, he combines on his solos, he combines all the little tricks and things that he's done, like playing on the hi-hat where you put your, with your left hand with the stick, underneath the hi-hat and then you play at the top it looks like he's almost playing with one hand but it's doing all these crazy little triplets and like that on the hi-hat but he's actually got one stick underneath the hi-hat that he's sort of you know you don't notice right away that he's playing with it so it's amazing looking um and just all his little tricks that he does um and he's known for his speed um buddy rich when he was doing solos um he would start out doing some kind of a uh, roll on the snare or something like that. And it would start out real slow and he would speed up and speed up and speed up. And he would get so fast and he would just continue with that speed, you know, that, and that roll. And you could see, you could watch his breathing and you can see that he was um, just like taking deep breaths and he was trying to keep it going and trying to keep it going, almost like, a, like, a, like a, you're just pumping air into something, you know. He was just kept breathing and playing and breathing and playing. It's just amazing how... He would, and of course, that's when the audience would all start going crazy and clapping and stuff like that and sort of egg him on and he would keep playing. It's just amazing watching him play. Definitely a drummer's drummer. Um, and you knew that that all came from just years and years of practice and experience and playing and practice and more experience and playing. And it just, you know, by the time he was in his, gosh, I think in his 30s, he was just a master at the instrument, you know. And, and had his own orchestras for a long, long, long time would be his own band leader and his own, play his own albums and things like that. It's amazing. Um, so the next drummer I'm going to talk about is uh, a little bit younger, uh, younger than me. Um, I believe he's 47 now. Travis Barker. i want to talk a little bit about Travis Barker. Oh, my God. Um, I listened to his audio book also, Travis Barker, um, and talked about how he started out, and he was just kind of a networker, and he would always take an opportunity and um, always really got into the drums, practicing and that kind of stuff. And um, his, uh, I heard somewhere that his practice regiment, in some cases, um, like before a tour or whatever, or just sometimes I don't know if it was just like randomly, I don't, he does this every single day. Maybe he does, I don't know. But that he practices f- about six to seven hours a day. I mean, think about that. Like for me playing one show, which is pretty physical, physically demanding the way I play, um, one sh- hour and a half show, one 90-minute show, um, I burn probably six or 700 calories or something like that. I mean, I put a lot into it. Um, Travis Barker, he is such a hard player, and I heard also that he chooses to set his drums up in such a way that they're actually a little bit harder to play. So if you tilt the drums toward you a little bit, you can reach them a lot easier. If you tilt them flatter there you have to raise your arm up to hit it a little more. They're a little more and I heard somewhere, I read somewhere that he do, he does that or did that, still yeah, does that, um, and has always done that, just so it will make him a better drummer. So, like think of it as kind of like a a linebacker or something to uh in a in a football team, the way the linebacker will tie in practice, will tie a parachute to his back and run and it kind of drag it creates the drag, you know, behind him, so he's developing the those muscles to, to run so that imagine if you took the parachute off, he would fly like the breeze, you know? Um, and that's the whole idea behind that. I think of maybe Travis Barker, something like that, um, that it's, it's harder to play with the drums flatter, but he's done it so long that he's so good at it that, um, I, I don't know how to explain that, but it, 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 there's something to that, um, that conditioning and that, um, amazing practice regimen, or you are going to call it. Um, but, so when he was younger, I read somewhere that uh, Travis Barker. Now, for those of you who don't know who Travis Barker is, he is the drummer with Blink One Eighty Two, and uh, he's also had his own albums and he's played on a lot of played drums on a lot of uh, a lot of other artists like uh, hip hop and rap artists and things like that. Um, he's done like cameo appearances on on them, so he's. I think he's probably the most famous member of Blink-182. Like I and that's not me just being a drummer, but I think that a lot of people now of course Blink-182 fans would definitely know who the singer is and the guitar player, but I think a lot of people in the mainstream um they know it's they know Travis Barker, they know that name, but I don't know if they can really name off the rest of the band. He's kind of the most famous um member of of that band, almost like Phil Collins with Genesis, you know. I mean He's the, he's the number one name you think of. And Travis Barker, not being a singer in the band, just the drummer, that's pretty remarkable that people know who Travis Barker is. They know that name uh, before they would know like who the lead singer is or who the guitar player is or something like that. Um, but Travis Barker, when he was younger, I read somewhere that um, he started getting tattoos all over his body, and he, he called them Job Stoppers because he always figured that if uh, if I had all these tattoos all over my body, then I won't ever have to go get a real job. Like no one would ever want to hire me for like at a bank or a mortgage company or a whatever, you know, at a, at a, I don't know, a waiter at a restaurant, whatever you want to call it. Um, a, a, a normal job. He would have to be a good drummer. He, he, that's just his number one. He thought if I got all these tattoos on my body, I don't have a choice. I have to be a good drummer. So that was his thinking behind that from what I read. That's what I read. Um, his audio book was really, really interesting. Um, but, you know, when you watch Travis Barker play, he you could see that he's in a zone. And a lot of drummers do this, like St- Stuart Copeland, who's another one of my big... I should have put him on the list, but I, I don't know why I didn't. Stuart Copeland, great, great, great drummer. And there's a focus, there's a there's a, a zone that those guys are in when they play. And I really admire that, because I know what that's like to play and be in a zone. And uh, I know that feeling, that, that by the end of the show... Um, You just, you can't believe that an hour and a half has gone by because like, what happened? We just do a show. Um, You're in such a zone where listening to the music and concentrating on every part and trying to play perfect and all that. um, It's almost like you don't get a chance. I'm saying me as a focused to drummer. um, You don't really get the chance to really enjoy the show or enjoy the crowd or anything like that. You rarely get a chance to look up and see what's going on because you're in such a zone playing. And I see people like Travis Barker, um, Buddy Rich, and Stuart Copeland, but especially Travis Barker. When you watch him play, he's in a zone. He is zoning out, man. He's in that zone. He's on drum planet 101. I mean, it's amazing to watch those guys play. And uh, I really admire guys like that that can that can just get in there and play so well. And they're combining their experience and their practice regimen and their abilities and their physical you know their physical abilities. In what they do, and I've always wanted to be a drummer like that, and I continue to strive to be a really, really good drummer. And I practice a lot, and um, I just feel I feel great in my career that I'm able to do this for a living. But I really, my hats off to people like the people like uh, Paul Lime, Vinny Calyuta, Steve Gadd, Buddy Rich, Travis Barker, Stuart Copeland. Those guys have truly, truly made a huge name for themselves. When you hear their name alone you think, oh, great drummer, great drummer. And uh, I just hope that someday people will remember me as something even close to that, even even if it's in the country genre or whatever. Um, I strive to be the best drummer I can be. And it's all because of people that I've looked up to over the years, like these guys I've mentioned um, uh, through the years, and I have just keep listening to them. And um, another drummer that I will mention that I uh, started out listening to when I was... Uh, Really young was, uh, I say really young when I was a teenager, Sib Hashin with Boston. He was the first, I believe he was the first, besides Buddy Rich. I mean, everybody sort of knew who Buddy Rich was. But when I was younger and I started listening to Boston, the group Boston, and I would listen to the mix that they would, that they'd created for that band and on the radio and records and things like that. And the first band that I ever started buying records for, like, I want that record, that song, more than a feeling and Long Time, and Peace of Mind, and those songs that Boston had first released out on the radio, I wanted that record so bad. And I bought it, and I wore it out, and I bought another one. And I think I probably bought that album through the years when I was younger, uh, probably two or three times, just because I wore it out. Um, And I remember one time I left the Boston record sitting next to a heater vent. I, I was listening to it in my headphones, my Radio Shack headphones on my turntable, and I had set the record. When I took it out, I set it down on the Uh, floor to listen to something else and and the heater it was close to the heater and it warped it and it made it all like bent and misshapen and i I thought ah, it was heartbreaking but i had to go buy another boston record it's people like that sib hasheen and um you know paul lime Vinny calyuda steve gadd buddy rich travis parker just to mention a few but those are the ones that i grew up listening to uh that shaped my playing and Uh, that made me the drummer that I am today, Um, professional and uh, just out there doing my thing, making a living at it for this many years. And coming up this year, this next spring, i will be 40 years that I've been playing drums professionally. And um, I'll have to make a special podcast episode for, um, I believe it's going to be in March of 22, will be exactly 40 years that I started playing professionally. My first gig Professionally was in 1982. In March of 1982, uh, joined this band in Dallas called the Doc Apple Band, and uh, they were my first gig. My first, uh, someone actually handed me money to play drums. It was pretty amazing, um, and then I just haven't stopped since then. Uh, and it'll be 40 years uh, in 22, and I have to celebrate that somehow because um, that's that's really uh, to me. That's a huge accomplishment, 40 years of having the same job. Um, Different bands, of course, but the same job title, drummer. And um, I have uh, grown into, basically for Lone Star, the designated drummer with that band. And um, it's going to be since 94 that I've been with that band. I don't have to do the math on that, but it's a lot of years. Um, So, uh, anyway, I will talk To you next time on Designated Drummer. Um, I'm so glad you joined me, and um, I have coming up in the next couple of weeks some amazing uh, drummers I'm going to talk to. I'm going to talk with um, uh, Brian Pruitt, who plays drums with Jake Owen, and Darnie Marples, who actually plays with uh, Lee Bryce. I'm going to talk to him. And uh, a couple of few other surprises, Um, non-drummer related, but music industry related, which is always kind of interesting to me to talk to professionals in the industry, like lawyers and uh, managers and things like that, um, to listen, and of course, a mixing engineer. I talked to Mills Logan, uh, one of my podcasts, very interesting to learn about the whole, uh, you know, sound perspective and uh, engineering perspective. Very interesting. And I will always keep it interesting for you guys if I can. And I hope you'll join me next time. Um, And I will uh, see you then. Take care.